Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 47 There has been a murder again! So it was way back in episode 10 when I got to crush an accent like that and it's time to get homicidal again. Point of note, this one may not be for the kids, you've been warned. While the exact borders are not defined, the area of East London is known as the East End for reasons that are readily apparent. It began to emerge as an urban area during the Middle Ages. But I know you don't care about that because, hey, we're here for the Victorian era after all. It was an area that became infamous for the shocking poverty, overcrowding and the resulting social problems. It contained many migrants, both from around the kingdom that were escaping rural poverty, but there were also a lot of Irish. There were also a lot of French Protestants and also European Jews, both of whom were looking to avoid the persecution they endured elsewhere. But if I could sum up how bad the area was during this time, well, let's just say that the maniac Jack the Ripper probably the most famous serial killer in history, roamed the Whitechapel area of the East End. Tiny buildings that were badly built with refuse and excrement on the streets, hideous overcrowding with whole families living hand to mouth in a single room, crime everywhere, disease a drink of water away. The stench of humans crammed into narrow, muddy streets, speaking all sorts of dialects and languages and all different and all hoping to make a success of themselves in the biggest city in the world, London. Through this miasma of hope and poverty that was the East End ran a main road known to the locals as the Highway. But being one of three main roads in the area didn't mean anything in terms of privilege. It was still the East End in Victorian London. It had originally been known as the Ratcliffe Highway, but locals shortened the name, and it was here at number 29 on the highway that in 1811 we find Timothy Marr living behind a cloth shop. He was in his 20s and had spent several years working for the East India Company. They were the globe-spanning and monstrous corporation that exploited indigenous peoples and countries, enforced their own rules as laws with a privately funded army, and sold opium to the Chinese for tea. Timothy lived in this tiny place with his wife Celia, their 14-week-old son who was also Timothy, as well as his apprentice James and a servant girl named Margaret. If you have been listening for a while or have some general knowledge about the time period, you know the horrendous hours that people worked during this time. So it should come as no surprise that at midnight on the 6th of December 1811, as the day turned into the 7th, the Mars household was preparing for the next business day. But even during this busy midnight hour, Timothy was thinking of his wife. 
she was still recovering from the birth of their child, so as something nice for her, he sent the servant girl Margaret out to get some oysters as a treat. Look, oysters wouldn't be my thing at any time of the day or night, but hey, it was definitely different times, and it is the thought that counts after all. In addition to that errand, she was to stop at a nearby bakery and pay a bill that was owed. And if you remember episode 6, you just know that a baker is going to be awake at that hour. As Margaret left, it's reported that she saw a man about to enter the building, thinking nothing of it. After all, businesses owned by families in these days would take any custom they could, regardless of the hour she left. Unfortunately for Margaret, the oyster shop was, ironically given the emphasis I've just placed on being open at crazy hours, closed. She then went to pay the baker's bill and in doing so passed by the Mars premises where she reported seeing the lights on and saw Timothy through the window still at work. After paying the aforementioned bill, Margaret decided to try another oyster shop for their wares. And I have to give her props here at this point. Margaret is living in the east end of London, walking alone at night. She is trying to do the right thing and stays out on the dark, dark streets in an attempt to try and get the elusive oysters. I know people really needed their jobs during this time, but I do think that this shows the kind of employers the Mars family were. That a young woman would go out of her way in such a place at such a time shows me more about how well she was treated than anything else you might suggest. But, despite her good intentions, unfortunately for Margaret, the second oyster shop was closed too. So, making a note, if I ever go back in time and I have to get a job in the east end of London, it's going to be as an oyster seller. At least I'd get to sleep all night, apparently. But, moving on from my time-travelling dreams of selling oysters, Margaret returned home to find that, despite her having been gone all of 20 minutes, and all her good intentions at trying to help her employers, they had turned off all the lights and locked the doors. Seems a bit rude, really. Now, Margaret then wrapped the door knocker to get someone to let her in and heard the baby cry upstairs. But no one came down. Hitting the door knocker harder to try and wake someone up to let her in, Margaret drew the attention of George Olney, the local night watchman. George also knew the Mars family and rapped on the door and helped in trying to get someone to answer. Something didn't seem right. The door might have been locked and the shutters were closed, but George noticed that the shutters hadn't been locked, which was odd. And the noise of these two at this late hour woke the next-door neighbour, a pawnbroker named John Murray. Concerned by the maid and the watchman being unable to wake anyone, he jumped from his backyard to that of the now darkened house. He did find that there was a light on inside at the back of the house and as he walked up the back steps, he called out saying that they had not latched their shutters. And getting closer, he saw that the back door was open. Worried now, John Murray walked into the residence and found a nightmare. It was a narrow building and even in the dim light that was still on, John saw blood all over the floor. 
the stench of it was thick in the air as horrified he struggled to avoid stepping in it on his way through to the front door to let the watchman in. Near the stairs to upstairs, John saw the body of the young apprentice James. The poor apprentice was just inside the shop door. Horrifically, his face had been smashed in, blood and gore splattering the walls. No doubt shocked, John made for the front door, only to find the body of Mrs. Celia Marr lying nearby. Her head had been battered in and blood still flowed across the floor. John finally managed to let George Olney in and together they searched for Timothy Marr, who was found behind the shop counter in a similar condition to his wife. From Margaret having said that she had heard the baby, the men ran upstairs. And the tragedy culminated in finding the poor child brutally dead. His face had been hammered, his throat had been slit to the point of severing his head. And you thought Jack the Ripper was the worst the East End had to offer. As the men surveyed the horror around them, neighbours came out to see what was going on and the local constabulary had already been called. Charles Horton was the first officer on scene. His report states that it seemed nothing had been taken, money was still in the till and they even found £152 in a drawer. Now that is a large sum of money, especially back then, and yet it had not been touched. Speculation rose quickly. Had the attacker been scared off, or was this a revenge attack by someone that Timothy Marr might have crossed? In the bedroom, the officer found a shipwright's hammer, what today we might call a sledgehammer, covered in blood and hair sticking to it. It also had a chip out of it for some reason. Naturally, this was assumed to be the murder weapon, and combined with two sets of footprints, it was believed that two men had fled when people started congregating. A number of people followed the footsteps and found someone who said they had seen ten people run by. I guess they believed him rather than think he was a suspect, because speculation now rose that the murders were the work of a gang. By the time Officer Horton returned to the police station, three sailors that had been seen in the area had been arrested. One even had what appeared to be blood flecks on his clothing. However, they all had a solid alibi, so were discounted. Despite other attempts at arresting suspects, the case was going nowhere. It was on December 10th that a coroner's jury came to the conclusion that someone must have been watching the shop and gone in while Margaret the servant girl was out. Timothy Marr's brother was held for 48 hours and interrogated. Apparently, he had recently had a disagreement with Timothy and, of course, family are always suspect. But despite this apparent evidence, he too had an alibi that checked out and was finally released. 
as was a small woman that had been a servant of the family before Margaret came into their employ. So they were really clutching at straws at this point. The family was sadly buried at the church where their son had been baptised only months before. Twelve days after this terrible slaughter, the sledgehammer was cleaned by the police. This actually gave them a genuine clue, as once cleaned, the initials IP, or maybe JP, were found to have been punched into the metal. The night that the police made this discovery was a quiet one at the nearby King's Arms Tavern on what is now Garnet Street. John Williamson was the 56-year-old publican and had run the pub with his wife Elizabeth for the last 15 years. Together with their servant Bridget, a woman in her 50s, it was generally a quiet place as the older couple liked to retire early in the evening. A local constable was keeping an eye on the place that night as John had spoken to him earlier in the evening about seeing a man in a brown coat loitering around and even listening at one of the doors. So the officer was nearby when he heard the cry of murder shouted from the upper floor. Racing to the scene, he and others found quite the spectacle. A naked man was using his sheets to climb down from the second floor. Hysterical, he dropped to the ground amongst the gathered onlookers. He would later be determined to be one John Turner, an itinerant worker that had lived at the premises for the last eight months. Obviously worried, the crowd took matters into their own hands and broke down the door to the tavern. And for the second time in less than two weeks, Londoners found a tragedy. The good publican John Williamson was found on the steps leading to the taproom. With a crowbar lying nearby, witnesses saw that he had been beaten around the head and his throat had been cut. His wife Elizabeth was found near the maid, both of whom had had their throats cut and their heads savagely bashed in. Bizarrely, but fortunately, the Williamson's 14-year-old granddaughter was found in her bed asleep. After she had been taken to safety, the property was investigated. It appeared that entry had been made by forcing open access to the cellar and bloodstains near an open window indicated where an escape had been made. John Turner, the man that had come down the sheets, said he had heard a noise and gone downstairs and had seen someone in a long coat standing over the body of Mrs. Williamson before he rushed back upstairs to escape. Although his evidence was treated with scepticism, after all he was still a suspect, law enforcement officers were sent out to look for anyone that might fit the description. Remember, there was still no police force as we know it today. These law enforcement officers were from the Bow Street Magistrates Court. They were a precursor to what would become the London Metropolitan Police and had their nickname among people as the Bow Street Runners. Now, I'm voting that as a cool name, but to the officers it was seen as derogatory. I'll talk about them some other time, but suffice to say that they're doing their best to find a monster roaming East London. Witnesses came forward describing two men, but reports varied and really weren't any help. Panic was beginning to set in amongst the locals. They had had two horrific killing sprees in a fortnight, 
and so the local magistrates offered a 100 guinea reward for evidence to convict someone. It was double what had already been offered for the Mars family, so you can see that matters were really escalating. And for the record, 100 guineas would have been about £100,000 today. So we're talking a lot of money on offer, which will give you some idea of how quickly the magistrates wanted the perpetrators found. John Williams was a man who was quickly targeted as a strong suspect. A 27-year-old sailor who currently shared a room in the area with another mariner, he had been noticed on the night of the murder coming home after midnight and having what appeared to be bloodstains on his pants. Writer Thomas De Quincey claimed that Williams had in the past been a sailmate of Timothy Marr. And while I had no idea he was going to appear in this tale when I started writing it, you may remember Thomas De Quincey as being the author of Confessions of an Opium Eater, which I mentioned briefly in the Opium episode. John Williams, though, had a reputation for being honest, always paying for his room and women liked him. He also admitted to drinking at the King's Arms and stated during interrogation that the Williams family considered him family. The fact that when he was arrested he had been found with money on him was suspicious as he had recently been seen as having none. However, he did have two pawnbroker tickets and claimed to have sold some clothing. Additionally, he had visited a doctor about an old injury, which, if you're trying to put it all together, might explain why he had bloodstains on his clothing given the hygienic practices of the day. He was put in Coldbath Fields Prison, but no one bothered to check his alibi or the pawnbroker. And then a break in the case occurred. On the 24th of December, Mr Vermelo came forward with a new lead. He was in Newgate Prison for debts and claimed that the sledgehammer belonged to yet another sailor, a man by the name of John Peterson. Peterson was away at sea, but upon investigating his storage trunk where he lived, it was missing the sledgehammer that he owned. This would have been standard equipment for the time, so the fact that it was missing wasn't a good sign. Also, Vermelo said it had been chipped something which occurred when Vermelo had borrowed the tool previously. This was important information, especially knowing about the chip, but it should also be noted that if he did get the 100 guinea reward, it would easily pay Vermelo's debts and get him out of prison. So take that with a grain of salt. And still on the 24th of December, John Turner the man who went out the window on the sheets, was asked if he recognised the imprisoned John Williams, and he could not. A washerwoman was found that had cleaned John Williams' clothing after he had been seen with blood on them. She testified that he had not brought work to her before or since, and he had claimed that the blood was on his pants, which came from an argument at a card game. While I agree this is kind of suspect, The fact is, none of the eyewitnesses indicated he could have been the man any more than anyone else could have been. And we have to remember that there was no DNA evidence or CSI type processes in place. This was the early days of what would one day be called criminology, so the eyewitness reports are pretty much all that they had to go on. Despite the fact that it strongly appeared that Williams was not involved in the crime in any way, he was sent back to prison for now. 
However, he was reported to be optimistic as to the outcome of the trial, which he never saw, because on December 28, he used a sheet to hang himself in his cell. This wasn't even known to have occurred until the guards came to take him back to court. Prisoners and even a warden reported that Williams had been in good spirits and expected things to go his way. People being people, the general public saw this as a conspiracy. It was speculated that Williams had been killed in some sort of attempt to resolve the case and stop authorities from looking for the actual killer. The man that had shared the lodging room with Williams claimed that Williams had borrowed his stockings, kind of like long socks, and returned them with mud and blood on them. When confronted, Williams had reportedly washed them. This was confirmed by a landlady who said she had not told anyone before out of fear of him killing her. How this happened or why, we really don't know but it was enough for the magistrate to declare Williams guilty of the crimes. Yes, he was charged with both family murders and the situation was regarded as solved. The Home Secretary, which is a senior position in the Kingdom's government, had been watching the case closely and was more than happy for this resolution and, being a politician, went with a highly visual ending. He had William's body paraded through the streets of the East End so that the locals could see the body of the man that had caused such horror. With a reported 180,000 people lining the streets, the body was drawn by wagon up the Ratcliffe Highway. When passing the Ma House, the wagon stopped for 15 minutes, which was long enough to actually have an illustration made. And you know you're going to see that on my Instagram, so go and check it out. And if you do look at it, I would like to draw your attention to the fact that he is clearly a stocky, well-built man. You know, just like the thin man described by witnesses. Moving on. This macabre procession proceeded to pass the King's Arms, where the Williamsons had loved and worked. Reportedly, it was here where the procession stopped for 10 minutes, during which time the wagon driver whipped the face of the dead John Williams three times. Then it was on to a nearby crossroads where a grave had already been dug, six feet deep right in the middle of St George's Turnpike. John Williams's body was tipped out of the cart and dumped into the hole. Then someone came forward and hammered a stake through his heart. This was a mix of old and new beliefs that I find fascinating. As a suicide, Williams could not be buried on church grounds, so it had to be somewhere else. Although I think the middle of an intersection is a little outside the norm. The grave was made small so that the body would not fit comfortably in it, so that he would feel uncomfortable in death. The stake was believed to pin the spirit to this place, not because they thought he was a vampire. Duh. I'm sure many of us know that being buried at a crossroads meant that a ghost would be confused as to which direction to go and thus could not enact revenge itself. So the locals were taking no chances and covering religion and folklore. Solid bet for sure, as long as you have the right man. After the ignominious dumping into the hole, quicklime was poured in. 
It's a caustic substance that burns organic material, and I guess this was just in case the stake didn't work. And in front of the crowd, the road was then restored. John Williams was definitely dead and buried, and the locals went back to their lives, safe in the knowledge that the homicidal maniac that had lived amongst them was gone. Or was he? No one knows what the motive for the murders was. Despite the reports of two sets of footprints that were seen leaving the first murder scene, no one else was ever convicted. While the sledgehammer itself was a solid item in terms of a murder weapon, the physical evidence found on it, thanks to the limited science of the day, was never connected to the victims in the Mars household. The closest the authorities got to any other sort of weapon was a knife that was found in the area. It apparently had blood on it, but there was no link to John Williams ever owning it. All the evidence against John Williams was what today we would regard as circumstantial and would not have even seen him arrested, let alone see any sort of attempt at prosecution. The only real link shown was that Williams had been a sailor and served with Timothy Mars previously, speculating that there was bad blood between the two men and that he also happened to drink at the Williamson's pub was really the extent of his guilt. The fact that he knew both men wasn't really that much of a thing when you consider that people stuck to their neighbourhoods and would likely know pretty much everyone that lived permanently in the area. One of William's drinking buddies was a man named William Ablas, someone who fit the description given of the figure seen at the King's Arms. While he was interviewed, he was never arrested. And as for Williams and his suicide, well, I have to say, it would be tricky to hang yourself in a cell with a sheet over a beam when your hands are manacled. Yes, he was still handcuffed. Sure, you could probably do it, but it's a lot of extra effort for a man making future plans because he was confident he was not going to be convicted because of, you know, lack of evidence. So through the couple of centuries since, it has long been believed that whatever involvement Williams might have had, it appears to have been silenced by someone or a group. Someone or some people that sought to ensure they remained on the outside of a cold stone cell. The Ratcliffe Highway murders have never been solved. Without modern criminology knowledge, it might have been easy to get fingerprints off the sledgehammer, or DNA matches, or any other method that science has created. But at that time, as I said, London didn't even have a police force, let alone some sort of regulated procedure that could be followed. This was 1811, during the Regency period, people were dressing well, beautiful buildings were being created, and we were in the time of Jane Austen and the soon-to-be George IV partying as hard as he could. The other side of this was people eking out a living trying to find a few pence a day to get their next meal. 
and all of this was happening with very little law enforcement. And monsters were roaming unchecked on the streets of London. On that note, here endeth the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslamp.com. My contact details are on there as well. And you can follow me on Twitter at VicGaslamp. And more importantly, on Instagram, where I post historical facts and trivia as well as photos related to the episodes. I am at Victorian Gas Lamp, or one word, there as well. Thanks for listening and keep a lookout for new episodes. And as always, I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. <laughs>